good to be together to worship God. I'm going to start with some verses from Deuteronomy 26. Not the most obvious choice, is it? Anybody know Deuteronomy 26? Okay, it'll be new for all of us then. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. And you shall make this response before the Lord your God. I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. I have removed the sacred portion from the house, and I have given it to the Levites, the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows, in accordance with your entire commandment that you commanded me. I have neither transgressed nor forgotten any of your commandments." Our prayer of approach this morning is slightly different. Um, We're going to do a prayer that has a response. And the words will appear on the screen. So hopefully you can see through my head to the screen. Um, The words that are in yellow, I will say. And the words that are in white, I would invite you to join in with me. So we're going to pray with our eyes open. Let us pray. Living love, beginning and end, giver of food and drink, clothing and warmth, love and hope, life in all its goodness, we praise and adore you. Jesus, wisdom and word, lover of outcasts, friend of the poor, One with us, yet one with God. Crucified and risen, life in the midst of death. We praise and adore you. Holy Spirit, storm and breath of love, bridge builder, eye opener, waker of the oppressed, unseen and unexpected, untamable energy of life. We praise and adore you. Holy Trinity, forever one, whose nature is community, source of all sharing, in whom we love and meet and know our neighbour, life in all its fullness, making all things new, We praise and adore you. Amen. The first reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Mary said, My heart praises the Lord. My soul is glad because of God, my Saviour. For he has remembered me, his lowly servant. From now on, all people will call me happy because of the great things the mighty God has done for me. His name is holy. From one generation to another, he shows mercy to those who honour him. He has stretched out his mighty arm and scattered the proud with all of their plans. 
He has brought down mighty kings from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has kept the promise he made to our ancestors and has come to the help of his servant Israel. He has remembered to show mercy to Abraham and to all his descendants forever. Second reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. Jesus returned from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. In all that time, he ate nothing, so that he was hungry when it was over. The devil said to him, If you are God's son, order this stone to turn into bread. But Jesus answered, The scripture says, Human beings cannot live on bread alone. Then the devil took him up and showed him in a second all the kingdoms of the whole world. I will give you all this power and all this wealth, the devil told him. It has all been handed over to me, and I can give it to anyone I choose. All this will be yours then, if you worship me. Jesus answered, The scripture says, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the highest point of the temple and said to him, If you are God's son, throw yourself down from here. For the scripture says, God will order his angels to take good care of you. It also says, They will hold you up with their hands so that not even your feet will be hurt on the stones. But Jesus answered, The scripture says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus in every way, he left him for a while. Then Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Holy Spirit was with him. The news about him spread throughout all of that territory. He taught in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. Then Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath, he went, as usual, to the synagogue. He stood up to read the scriptures and was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has chosen me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and announce that the time has come when the Lord will save his people. Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. All the people in the synagogue had their eyes fixed on him, and as he said to them, this passage of scripture has come true today, as you heard it being read. The season of Lent. You can tell we're in Lent. We have our purple, we have our candle. It's a time when traditionally Christians engage in an extended period of self-examination and soul-searching in the run-up to Easter. Six-week Bible studies are often very well received with people feeling that they're doing something appropriate to the season and sometimes will cheerfully assert that they're not just giving something up. Oh no, they're taking something on. 
There are lots of things that happen in and around Lent, things that we can get involved with to some degree. And they're good things. They can help us in our thinking and our preparing. But the truth is that very often they become time-bound and isolated exercises. It's quite rare that they actually lead us into a commitment to do anything new or different. Or at least that's my experience. And if that is a reasonable assessment, and you're free to disagree on that, then either it's a really good thing or a really bad thing that this year the majority of our services during Lent are going to focus on mission. It's a good thing because it lies at the heart of why the church exists, and so it's important that we focus on it. But it's a bad thing if what happens is that when we get to Easter we then forget all about it again. So time will tell whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to preach about mission in Lent. I want to start by saying I am not going to make any apologies whatsoever for using the word mission. There are people who will tell me and do tell me they don't like that word. And they might say, well, why can't you use something nicer like outreach it's a bit more you know soft and fluffy and woolly or why can't you say evangelism which is nice and precise and straightforward I think these kind of questions usually arise because people haven't really had the opportunity to think all that deeply about mission and so haven't yet discovered for themselves that it's not just about the salvation of souls Nor is it just about reaching out to this or that group within society. Each of those is definitely part of mission, but neither of them is mission in its entirety. There are other people who will and do tell me that they don't like the associations that the word mission carries. In their mind, it's equated with military or espionage activities. For others, it's totally tied up with business goals they live with at work. And still others have read either literal revisionist histories or fictional accounts of missionaries that are deeply critical of Christian missions, and they think that the word is irretrievably tarnished. It's a word that cannot be redeemed in the minds of some people. That's an interesting theological debate in its own right. And of course, some of you will have never thought about any of this, and you're thinking, goodness gracious, I never knew there were these things to debate about mission. I just kind of ignored it, if you're anything like I tend to be. Well, whether you like it or whether you don't like it, whether I like it or I don't like it, The sense of being commissioned and sent for a defined purpose is right at the heart of Christian self-understanding. If it wasn't for mission, we wouldn't be here today. Hillhead Baptist Church began as a missional enterprise, what nowadays would be called a church plant, but they hadn't invented those words in the late 1800s. A small number of people left their church in Adelaide Place to establish a new witness on what, at that time, was the edge of the city, 
where new homes were being built. Within a generation, that same missionary spirit had inspired the establishment of mission churches at Partick and Port Dundas. You might have spotted we have two chalices on the table this morning rather than the usual one. One from Partick and the slightly skew-iffy one from Port Dundas. When things changed and people moved on in those two missions, they returned to us the chalices, but they quite clearly say those are mission churches. And more widely, the church quite rightly has a proud history of people who served in overseas mission, notably, though not exclusively, with BMS, the Leprosy Mission, and the United Mission to Nepal, and we have some of those former missionaries with us this morning. Can I suggest that an intellectual objection to the word mission and a reluctance to get involved in it is dishonouring to our forebears and, quite frankly, is insulting to those among us who have devoted time and energy to bringing gospel to people, whether close at home or in faraway places. Mission and ministry are inextricably intertwined. Hiding behind terminology or debating semantics doesn't get us away from the fact that right from the emergence of the Jesus movement, the purpose has been and continues to be to speak and to be good news. An awful lot has been written about mission and continues to be written about mission. One of the most important and influential books in recent recent times is David Bosch's Transforming Mission. Um, Those who teach theology or have studied theology probably are aware with that. And this book introduced me to a phrase which has stayed with me ever since. The phrase is mission in many modes. It's a concept I found to be helpful and liberating. Mission in many modes doesn't allow us to sit back and say everything is mission. It doesn't mean we can just say, well, that's okay, as long as we're generally nice people. And as long as we're involved in the few carefully selected charitable endeavours that suit us, that's mission. It doesn't allow us to say that. That's, That's too simple. Opinions vary, but it is often said that if everything is mission, then nothing is mission. In other words, there has to be something unique and distinctively Christian about those things that we term mission. I think there is some merit in that argument, at least for me as I examine my motivation for the things that I do. For example, what motivates me to support cancer charities is not my faith in Christ, but my experience of cancer. Therefore, it is not mission. I might shape that by bringing my Christian faith to it, but it is not directly, in my opinion, a missional endeavour. And I'll just leave that for you to ponder in relation to your own activities and draw your own conclusions, which may be different. That's fine. It seems to me that the expression mission in many modes allows us to see how our own unique gifts, skills, insights and understandings are part of a more marvellous and diverse whole. And therefore not to feel bad about what we are not, 
but instead to rejoice in what we are. Not all are evangelists. Not all are human rights lawyers. Not all are teachers or medical professionals. Not all can serve overseas. Not all can relate to people trapped by poverty or addiction. But all can and all should play their part in what is sometimes glibly referred to as the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the outworking of God's will in human history. No excuses are permitted. We can't hide behind our dislike of a certain word or our lack of specific gifts or skills. Participation in mission is demanded of every one of us as individuals and as a congregation collectively. Hillhead Baptist Church has a unique role to play in God's mission in this place at this time. The task we have is to reflect on what that might be and then get on with doing it together, all of us. Over the next few weeks, then, we're going to be looking at some aspects of mission by focusing on particular parts of the New Testament. And then, in my last one, I'm actually going to bring in some of what Bosch himself has to say. Because the lectionary gospel for this year is Luke, it seemed the right place to start. Identifying an understanding of mission that is rooted firmly in the ancient concept of jubilee. In the last few weeks, we've already spent some time reflecting on Jesus' temptations and of his declaration of intent at the Nazareth Synagogue. As we approach them again today, we specifically have mission in mind. The beginning of the Gospel of Luke, largely ignored in preaching, it has to be said, offers us an insight into the mind of the author. David Bosch suggests that this gospel was probably written at a time when the early church was becoming settled and quite probably that the numerical increase which had been very exciting at the start had slowed down and quite possibly stalled. Against that background and with what now questions in the minds of the believers, Luke sets out to prepare an orderly account for Theophilus. Now, whether Theophilus was a real person for whom this was written, or whether it is in fact a literary device similar to the gentle reader of our own time, is a moot point. The fact is that this account is aimed at a person who is a lover of God. That's what Theophilus means. A lover of God who wants to understand better their faith in Christ. It's not a how-to book about mission, but it is shot through with theological understandings of what mission might be about. Accounts of sending and of being sent with specific purpose occur throughout the two volumes of Luke Acts. And it's no accident how the gospel begins. The birth narratives root the story very firmly in a devout Jewish context. Mary's song in the opening chapter echoes the prayer of Hannah in the Old Testament. 
and each of them draws from ancient writings themes about God's concern for the poor and marginalised members of society, of those who are humble being exalted whilst those who are rich are sent away. The faithfulness of the God of Israel through all generations lies at the heart of Mary's prayer. A God who is dependable and generous, who sees what is happening and will not allow injustice to carry on unchecked indefinitely. Even while Jesus is a tiny embryo in her womb, Mary's song carries in equally embryonic form the good news that will be announced and the new order that will be born along with her child. The ancient principles of jubilee, cancellation of debt, a fresh start for everyone, healing and wholeness, these are glimpsed by a peasant girl and recorded by the gentle physician as he sets the scene for his account of the life and work of Jesus, the establishment of the church by Peter, Paul and many others. Indeed, once we've noted this, we can read Luke and Acts afresh and see these themes recurring time and time again. If the principle of jubilee can be identified as a key theme in the ministry of Jesus, then it has to be a key theme in the life of the church. And so one way of viewing mission has to be as jubilee. At the start of Lent, it's really useful to hear again the account of Jesus' temptation and of his preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. And to do this with the thinking mission lens, specifically looking for anything that speaks to us about mission as jubilee. The Isaiah passage, complete with its little tweaks, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, read by Jesus at Nazareth, carries with it an undeniable sense of jubilee principles, of justice for all people. And as we recognise when we looked at this passage, the illustrative examples he uses from the times of Elijah and Elisha clearly illustrate the extension of this principle beyond the bounds of Israel. The Gentiles, the other nations, are now beneficiaries of the Lord's favour. Luke's inclusion of this account makes it very clear that his understanding about the gospel, the good news, is it is for everyone. Now, this passage has a very clear and undeniable emphasis on social action. People need to be released from the traps of poverty, hunger, disease, exploitation, and so forth. Christians should be at the forefront of campaigning for justice for all people. But recognising this carries a danger a danger that we reduce mission to social work, that actually we are no different from anyone else who has a genuine concern for people who have no voice to speak for themselves or who are trapped by circumstance. Mission may find its outward expression in social action, but social action is not automatically mission. Usually, when we read Luke 4, we break it up so that we have the account of the temptations completely separate 
from the account of the Nazareth Manifesto. And that's what we did a few weeks ago. And that's useful. It helps us to look at them in quite a lot of detail. But I think it also is potentially unhelpful because it draws a distinction between a very private experience of Jesus and a very public one. You see, the temptations and Jesus' response to them directly influenced what happened next. His choice of the Isaiah passage that he chose, that he used when he was invited to read and preach in Nazareth. And indeed, that in turn shaped the whole of his ministry. If that wasn't the case, Luke's gospel would be told differently. The three temptations each work against principles of jubilee. Look after number one by meeting your own needs. Seek power and status in the world. Make religion into a spectacle for vainglory and self-aggrandizement. Jesus rejects each of those, and the way he does so is explicitly faith-based. He cannot and he will not separate his religious beliefs from his everyday life. I think that helps us as we consider the idea of mission as jubilee and that how that differs, albeit perhaps subtly, from other kinds of social action. Time's running out, but just as an example, let's look at the first recorded temptation. The temptation to feed himself by turning stones into bread. Some preachers and indeed some commentators extrapolate this to suggest it could be read as alleviating world hunger, not just looking after himself. Turn these stones into bread, there's loads of them, and then everybody will be fed. And that's it. World hunger eliminated at a stroke. By analogy, we could do the same with any other physical injustice or inequality. Fix the material and the societal problems and everything will be fine. Jesus' response makes it quite clear that satisfying physical needs is never going to be the whole story. There are complex human needs that can only be satisfied through spiritual means. You need more than just food for the body, more than just warmth and shelter and security, important and essential as these are. I'm sure many of you are far better up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs than I am. But many centuries later, best part of 2,000 years later, he noted that once the basic needs are met, the deeper, less tangible needs emerge, for which the hunger can be every bit as significant as a physical hunger. God alone can meet those deepest, innermost needs. The principle of jubilee assumes faith in God, and for the Christian, therefore, faith in Christ Understanding mission as jubilee is especially demanding because it denies us the option of a narrow definition of mission, that it's just about the saving of souls or it's just about dealing with social problems. It gives us something much more demanding and much more holistic, to use the 
trendy word, that somehow these are integrated into a coherent whole. Perhaps the best-known examples of this approach to mission are the work of organisations such as Christian Aid and Tear Fund, each of which works tirelessly to bring practical and physical relief to people in the most disadvantaged places, and each of which is unashamedly Christian in its motivation. I think that same understanding of mission also is part of what inspires BMS and TLM and UNM and Baptist World Aid. It's good that we support these organisations financially, and I know many of us do. It would be even better if we could take some of those principles and live them more fully locally. I just wonder what it is that God might be saying to us collectively and perhaps individually, but especially collectively, about mission as Jubilee. In our prayers for others, there are a couple of responses. So when I say, Lord, in our mercy, I wonder if you might say, hear our prayer. And we'll end with the Lord's Prayer. And if you would like to follow that in the Red Book, it'll be the first version or the one that uses the yours rather than the thys. Let us pray. Lord, listen to our prayers for ourselves at this time. Bring to our minds the places where we have compromised the truth for that which is convenient to us. The times we have shut our eyes and ears and hearts to the needs of others. The times we have indulged ourselves to our own detriment. Help us, God, to know that you forgive these things and give us strength to resist them in the future. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, listen to our prayers for others at this time. For those who hunger for bread but find only stones. For those who seek justice but can find no advocate who will help them. For those who are in danger and have no one watching over them. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, speak to us in the silence of our hearts as we reflect on what we've heard and in anticipation of our meeting together. Show us the way to go. We pray to you in the name of Jesus, who taught us to come to you, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, God, you have blessed us with so much. There are so many possibilities for us to enjoy life and live it fully. 
Be with us as we go from here, as we share food together, as we discuss the work of this church together, and as we eventually go home and rest. Be with us and surround us with your love today and every day.